It's Thursday, September 27th. We're all outraged and everyone's crazy. In a small village in the colony of Massachusetts, the people were on edge. The France War had just ended. Smallpox had just ripped through the town. Natives in a nearby village had been attacking throughout the year, and a much larger town nearby had been causing troubles. It was a scary place to live. It was a scary time to live. It was about to get a lot scarier. It would be 84 years later that the Declaration of Independence would be signed and a great country would be built. But today, in this small village, a nine-year-old girl named Betty Paris became ill. Soon after, her 11-year-old cousin Abigail Williams also became ill. The two girls were having violent fits, uncontrollable outbursts, and throwing up. The local doctor, William Griggs, diagnosed the girls. They had been bewitched. Soon after, other little girls in the community were also sick. Anne Putum, Mercy Lewis, Elizabeth Hudbird, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. The town was horrified. They could fight the French. They could fight the natives. They could even fight a disease. But how do you fight the devil? What would happen to all of their children? The next month, a slave named Titubu and two homeless women, Sarah Good and Sarah Osmond, were accused of witchcraft. Titubu confessed to the crime in order to avoid death and told the court there were many witches among the town. The story began to sweep through the village. Hysteria began. People were terrified and outraged. The court decided to hear the cases. The sick girls were brought to the courtroom. Everyone could see them yelling, screaming, uncontrollable fits. This could only come from the devil. What else could cause this? The women on trial pleaded. They were innocent. They had no idea how these girls got sick. But fear, outrage, and hysteria had blinded the minds of the town. Bridge Bishop was the first person to be convicted and hung. As the cases continued, Minister Cotton Matthew began to warn the town and the courts. They needed to not allow people to testify about dreams they had had or visions they had had, but the court would not listen. So witnesses were brought to court and would testify about a dream or a vision. And that was considered evidence and guilty verdicts were handed out. Within a few weeks, 18 more people were convicted and hung. By the end of that summer, 150 more men, women, and even children had been accused of witchcraft. This included a four-year-old daughter of one of the women who had already been killed. By this point, the hysteria had settled down and people were beginning to wonder if these trials were actually fair. I mean, how does one prove that you're not a witch? 
when it's one person or even 19, that's one thing. But now it was 150 people, including little children. It seemed as if you could point to someone, call them a witch, and then their fate was sealed. Suddenly, people began to see that it could be them next. Cotton Matthew and his son continued to beg people to stop the trials. He demanded the people on trial must be innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until they could prove they were innocent. Finally, the governor of Massachusetts, Governor Phipps, stepped in and dissolved the court. A year after the two girls had gotten sick, May Phipps had pardoned and released everyone from the witchcraft charges. Five years later, on a cold January day, the town held a moment of silence in memory of the women who had been killed during these trials. The trials would haunt that town forever. The Salem witch trials, even today, are remembered in horror. Today, the symptoms of those little girls points to eating fungus that will cause vomiting, muscle spasms, and hallucinations. How could it happen? How could people stand by and watch an innocent person hung to death based on no evidence at all? The terrifying part is that everybody involved thought they were doing the right thing. The judge, the crowds that watched the hanging, the executioner, the parents of the little girls, they all thought they were doing the right thing. This is how evil grows and takes hold. It presents itself as the right thing. It takes just one person in the community that is recognized as an authority to become hysterical or outraged for the mob to follow. The brain is so easily manipulated because it is designed to protect our family and our lives. The same thing would be seen in World War II. Before the war and during the war, horrible things were done to the Jewish people and to those that were willing to protect them. During the war, many Germans became secret informants for the Gestapo and told on their parents, their friends, their children, if they dared to go against Hitler. It was not until after the war that suddenly the horrors of what they had been part of began to be understood. There's a video of a group of German women walking into a concentration camp. They're smiling at the cameras and waving. They're dressed nice and showing off their clothing as they march in. They look like celebrities on the red carpet. As the same people walk out of the camp, they're holding each other up, shaking and crying. Not only because they saw the truth, but they realized they were to blame. This had happened in their town. Their husbands and sons had worked there. They had been silent or worse, they had encouraged it. So here's the question. Were the German people born evil? Was it something in the German DNA that made them become monsters? Or were they, like the families in Salem in 1692, caught up in an hysteria, fear, and outrage? Did they think they were doing the right thing? And is there really anything different from the German people in the 1930s and 40s than me and you? Is there really anything different from the moms and dads living in the village of Salem that is different from me and you? Are we vulnerable to become hysterical and outraged? And could we do the unthinkable as well? Let's look at the strange things that our society is now outraged about. Well, Trump. 
just stop for a minute and ask yourself why. Why exactly are we outraged about Trump? I mean, up until just a few years ago, he was loved and respected by both the left and the right. The black community loved him. Actually, they worshipped him. There are songs about him. He won awards from the black community for his work in the community. Black leaders took their pictures with him. He was loved by the rich. They all wanted to stay at his hotels. They wanted to golf at his courses. They wanted him at their parties. The Clintons invited him to their daughter's wedding. The middle class loved him. His TV show was his huge hit, and it was a game show where the winner got to work for Trump. That was the prize, having Trump as your boss. Celebrities loved him. His show changed to Celebrity Apprentice, and all the B-list celebrities were lining up to be on his show. This time, the prize was money going to charity. That show was an even bigger hit. Women loved him. They threw themselves at him. Do you remember this? Because it wasn't actually that long ago. Then he ran for office as a Republican. And suddenly, he was a racist who hates women and gays and handicapped people. And then he was actually literally Hitler. The hysteria spread super fast. It just took a few respected people to show hysteria for it to spread. Celebrities, media, leaders in the black community, all the hysteria spread. The weird thing was, he was not even a very conservative leader. In fact, a lot of libertarian conservatives hated him because he was so liberal and they thought he was basically just a Democrat. Then he won and the hysteria jumped about a million degrees. Not only was Trump Hitler, but now all his followers were Nazis. Every day it ramps up higher and higher. And what has Trump done while in office that was so outrageous? Well, let's see. We have a 4.2 growth. We have a 3.9 unemployment. He's basically ended the Korean War. There's the lowest ever black unemployment rate, ever. There's the lowest ever Hispanic unemployment rate, ever, in the history of the United States. There's the largest middle class tax cut. He's had 26 judges implemented, including Neil, Neil Gorich. ISIS is basically gone. Like, we don't hear anything from them anymore. He's pro-life. Trump is so clear that he's pro-life. He's spoken at pro-life events. Um, he's ended funding to any groups that were part of abortions in other countries. He's made it clear that if a bill comes across his desk that will defund Planned Parenthood, he's going to sign it. He has put one pro-life judge on the Supreme Court, and he's trying to put another one on. And just this week, he stopped all payments that involve buying the bodies of aborted babies. First of all, it's horrible that that happens. But this also is going to save the American tax dollars about $100 million. I think what you should be outraged about is the fact that $100 million was going to buy the bodies of dead aborted babies. He's the most pro-Israel president in history. He's cut over $500 million in aid that was going to terrorists, like the Hamas-run Palestinian. Um, he closed the PLO office in Washington. He moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. And Israel finally, finally has a friend again in America. Now, I understand those who are not pro-life and are pro-abortion. They would probably have a problem with him. And I understand if you're racist and you hate Israel, you might not like that either. But clearly, this guy is not Hitler. And yet, the outrage is insane. Right from the beginning, people were actually screaming in the streets as Trump was being sworn in. Uh, a little over the top there, people. 
but it didn't take long for his supporters to also be attacked. There's this woman named Candace Owens. She's a black woman who voted for Obama twice and did not vote for Trump. However, seeing all the crazy hysteria made her actually become a Trump supporter. And she speaks about the left and why the black community needs to be allowed to speak and think for itself. So what has this mob done? Well, they surrounded her when she was eating in a restaurant, yelling at her until she had to leave, then following her out, throwing things at her and spitting on her, while a white woman shouts at her through a megaphone, calling the black Candace Owen a racist. This week, Candace was speaking in Hawaii, and white people threw frozen poop at her. I mean, think about that. At what point are we going to stop and say, you know what, maybe white people shouldn't throw frozen poop at a black person. Or how about maybe nobody should throw frozen poop at anyone, especially if it's just because they support the current president of the United States. And today we're seeing the highest peak in this outrage so far, Judge Brent Kavanaugh. So let's look at this guy. He worked as a law clerk for a judge named Walter Stapleton. And this was at the appeals court for the Third Circuit. So while Kavanaugh worked for this judge, a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey came into the courtroom. This case was just after Roe versus Wade, and a lot of people were hoping it would go to the Supreme Court and would actually overturn Roe versus Wade. The case was to end the laws in Pennsylvania that said a woman had to give knowledgeable consent to an abortion. That means she needed to know what an abortion was and how to take the information home and wait 24 hours before coming back for the abortion. She also had to have her husband's consent and minors had to have parental consent. So the court actually ruled that all of these laws had to end. But then the case went to the appeals court and Judge Stapleton ruled that all the laws could stay except for the husband's law. So you still had to... Uh, take 24 hours after getting the information about what abortion was. And if you were a child, you had to have a parent consent. So Kavanaugh's next clerk job was at the Supreme Court for Justice Anthony Kennedy. This time he was working along his high school friend, Neil Gorsuch, and with his future judge named Gary Freeman. So his next job was the one that put him in the crosshairs of the Clintons. Kavanaugh worked for Ken Starr as an associate counsel in the office of the independent counsel. In this job, he worked on the investigation on the death of a man named Vincent Foster. So Vincent Foster worked with the Clintons before Bill Clinton became president and then came to the White House to work with the Clintons. So the Clintons were being investigated for the work that they had in Arkansas and Vincent had worked at the same law firm. Then Vincent was found dead in the park with a bullet in his head. People said that it was suicide, but some thought that the Clintons actually had Vincent killed in order to keep him quiet. So there was an investigation into the death of Vincent Foster and Kavanaugh worked on this investigation. There was a lot of anger at the time against Kavanaugh because he spent so much time and money looking into what the media was calling crazy conspiracy theories. In the end, Vincent Foster's death was concluded a suicide. However, Kavanaugh, in a case called Swindler and Berlin versus United States, he argued that he should be allowed to 
disregard attorney-client privilege in relation to the investigation of Foster's death and that there was information he knew about that he wanted to give. Kavanaugh ended up losing the case and took it all the way to the Supreme Court. This was the only case Kavanaugh took all the way to the Supreme Court. He lost the case with a vote of six to three and was not allowed to say what he knows about the death of Vincent Foster. The stories of Vincent Foster continued and since more people close to the Clintons mysteriously died, a term they suicided them started. This dated back to the suicide of Vincent Foster. Kavanaugh was not done with the Clintons. He then became one of the main people working on the Star Report when Congress began investigating the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton sex scandal. So Starr wanted to be really gentle in his questioning of Clinton, but it was Kavanaugh that pushed for harder questions. It was Kavanaugh that pushed actually for Clinton to be impeached and wrote that Clinton was involved in a conspiracy to obstruct justice and had a disregard for his office. The report that Kavanaugh wrote was very explicit in the details of every single one of the president's sexual encounters with Monica Lewinsky. Then in 2000, Kavanaugh was thrust into the spotlight again when he took on a case for free. This was the case of a six-year-old boy named, uh, named Gonzalez. So this was a six-year-old boy that had come to America from Cuba on a small raft with his mother. His mother died during the trip, leaving the six-year-old alone on the raft. He was rescued and taken by relatives, but then the Clinton government agreed with the Cuban government that they wanted the little boy back in Cuba. The Clintons agreed to have him sent back. Kavanaugh tried to find a way to keep the little boy in America, but he was sent back to live with his father in Cuba. His family was devastated. And then in 2003, Kavanaugh got a job working as the assistant to President Bush and the White House secretary. In 2006, Kavanaugh was appointed as a judge. He was confirmed by the Senate with a vote of 57 to 36. As a judge, all the cases he decided except for one were upheld by the Supreme Court and they considered his judgments fair. In the meantime, Kavanaugh married, he had two daughters, and he was a really present father. He coaches his daughter's basketball team, he volunteers in the school tutoring students, and once a week feeds homeless people at the shelter. So he's fought against men who have treated women disrespectfully, even if that person is the President of the United States. He's fought for the truth at the death of a man, even if that death was tied to the President of the United States. He's a great father and husband, and he volunteers his time with the most vulnerable citizens. Then in 2012, Mitt Romney ran for president against Barack Obama. In his campaign, he submitted a list of men and women he would appoint to the Supreme Court if he won the election. Kavanaugh's name was on that list. Mitt Romney lost the election, and Obama took a second term as president. Then in 2016, Donald Trump ran for office and also submitted a list of names he would appoint to the Supreme Court. On that list was both Kavanaugh and his lifelong friend, Neil Gorkrich. These men have been friends since high school, and as I said earlier, they were at the beginning of their careers, they both clerked the Supreme Court Judge Anthony Kennedy. The election, as we well remember, was a roller coaster ride, and many on the right did not support Trump and did not want to vote for him. 
But there was a seat available on the Supreme Court, and conservatives wanted someone who would follow the Constitution and not allow the court to be used as a way to create laws. I've talked before about how abortion became law in the United States, and you can go back to my website and go to my past podcast and look at the clip called Roe versus Wade, and that's at lauraleesiemens.com. So one of the main reasons Trump won the election was the Supreme Court. After the election, Trump nominated Neil Gorkrich, and he was sworn in as a Supreme Court justice on April the 10th, 2017. Then, in a shocking twist, Anthony Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court, leaving his seat available. Trump nominated the man who had once clerked for Kennedy, Kavanaugh. It seems like a perfect fit. Kavanaugh fought to have the Clintons impeached, so he clearly believes there's a legitimate legal thing to do over a sex scandal or over lying to the American public. You would think the Democrats would love that. Kavanaugh learned law from Kennedy, the man that he is being replaced. Kavanaugh has a spotless record and is extremely involved in the community. Kavanaugh has shown with his actions that he cares about the most vulnerable, something all Americans should want in a Supreme Court justice. One little problem. He's pro-life. Oh, and there's that pesky thing where he tried to impeach Bill Clinton and didn't really buy the suicide of Vincent Foster. So the pro-abortion group hates him and the Clinton machine really hates him. So Kavanaugh then sat before the Senate to answer questions. His wife, two daughters, mother and father were in the room. Then protesters began yelling inside the Senate, screaming, swearing. They had to be forcibly removed. This happened over and over again. Kavanaugh's daughters began crying and had to be removed because they were frightened. This has never, ever happened in a Senate meeting to look at a possible judge, ever. Women showed up in costumes that looked like they were from the handsmaid tales because apparently the judge wants to force women to have children for him or something. No one's really sure. So after 31 hours of answering questions, Kavanaugh then went into a closed questioning period and answered more questions. Then the Senate sent in 1,200 written questions. Kavanaugh then had to give a written answer for 1,200 questions. If you add up all the written questions given to every single Supreme Court nomination, it would be less than 1,200. Kavanaugh had to answer more questions than every Supreme Court nomination before him combined. Finally, after all that, the vote was supposed to take place. Then, just hours before the vote, a letter surfaced from a woman named Dr. Ford. This woman went to high school with Kavanaugh, and in this letter, she said Kavanaugh and another boy were at a party with her when she was 15 and they were 17. According to Dr. Ford, Kavanaugh pushed her into a bedroom and onto a bed, turned the music up, and then tried to have sex with her. She escaped and then told nobody until she sent a letter to the Democrats. The letter was sent in July. So the Democrat senators had this letter for three months and did nothing with it until just hours before the vote. Nothing was said during the 31 public hours of questioning. Nothing during the closed questioning. Nothing in the 1,200 written questions. But now we all have to believe this is a real victim who must be heard. Kavanaugh actually heard about the report by watching the news. This is how he found out that a woman was saying he tried to rape her when he was in high school. He saw it on the news. 
So stop and just think about that for a minute. Imagine you hear that someone has said you are an attempted rapist and you find out you've been accused of that at the exact same time the entire free world hears you've been accused of that. And accused changes within seconds to he did it. Dr. Ford was called a survivor, not an accuser. Kavanaugh was, of course, shocked by this and began to fight back. But how do you prove you didn't try to rape somebody 35 years ago? To make things even more crazy, Dr. Ford can't remember where the party took place, just the basic area of town. She can't remember when it took place, just the year. And all the people she named being at the party say they have no idea what she's talking about. And still, she's a survivor. And we have to believe all women. So they want Kavanaugh to prove he didn't attend a party at some point in 1982 in some place in the town and that he didn't try to rape somebody. How do you prove that? Can you prove you weren't at a party at some point in some place that we can't tell you the point or the place? Then another woman came forward. This time she had been found by the news reporters and she remembered being at a party at Yale she remembers getting really drunk and she remembers someone pulling their pants down and exposing themselves, but she didn't know who it was. But after talking to reporters for about six days, she decided it was Kavanaugh that did it. First of all, I've never been to these kinds of college parties. I avoided these kinds of parties in high school and I actually went to a college that didn't even allow one chaperone party. So I'm just guessing here, but I do live in a huge college university area. And from what I hear, those parties tend to involve a lot of drinking and a lot of both men and women taking clothes off and flashing people. So chances are pretty high this woman from Yale experienced this, probably on more than one occasion if she went to more than one party. But seeing as to how she didn't remember until this week, over 30 years later, that it was Kavanaugh that exposed himself, that makes the story a little hard to believe. Still, the vote to make Kavanaugh a judge was postponed. Then creepy porn lawyer shows up on CNN and he says he has multiple clients that are going to testify that they were part of a sex trafficking ring that Kavanaugh and his friends ran in high school. Well, that escalated fast. So think back to the start of this episode, the Salem witch trials. What happens when we get outraged and we believe the testimony of someone with no proof and we force the accused to prove that they're innocent? Things escalate quickly and people stop thinking rationally. Now, don't you think if there was a secret sex trafficking ring being run by Kavanaugh, the Clinton machine would have found it when Kavanaugh was trying to impeach Bill or was investigating the death of Vincent? Kavanaugh then went on Fox News to share his story, denying the whole thing. And he said he was a virgin in high school and, and long after that, he was then asked when he lost his virginity. What? What? Do we really need to know when a man lost his virginity before he could be a judge? Is this actually critical information for us? Then CNN actually began mocking him when he said he was a virgin in high school and saying obviously he was telling a lie because who is a virgin in high school? I don't know. Lots of people. That same night, Ted Cruz, a Cuban-American senator, was out for a nice supper date with his wife. A crowd of people ran into the restaurant and began yelling at him. So here's the outrage. Ted Cruz can't have dinner with his wife because he's friends with a man who is loved by a community 
but might, might have exposed himself during a college party and might, might have gotten out of control with a girl in high school. This is the outrage machine that leads normal people to do things they regret once the outrage goes away. This is the outrage that is created when people who are trusted, like mainstream media and celebrities, are outraged. I'm going to tell you something. They do this for ratings. Then Wednesday afternoon, that lawyer came out with a name and picture of a girl named Julie. She said all through high school there were these parties that involved drinking and sex. And Kavanaugh was at these parties. So clearly he ran a sex rape gang. This letter itself is very weird. Like there was a, this was a regular thing. They had lots of these parties that involved drinking and rape and no one knew about it. And this girl went to lots of these parties. Why would you go to more than one of these? So she's watching boys gang rape girls and she thought, this is a party I should attend again. And then she was a victim and she kept going to the parties. And here's the part of the outrage machine isn't pointing out. At least as I record this, I haven't heard this yet from the media. They keep saying she was brave and trustworthy, but according to her own testimony, she was in college attending high school parties where she saw girls being raped. Not one party, lots of them. She graduated three years before Kavanaugh did. So she was an adult and saw kids getting raped and did nothing and said nothing, but she's the victim. That's super creepy lady. Why is a college girl going to a high school party and watching girls get raped? Also, she's very careful to not say that Kavanaugh raped anyone. Her allegation is that she saw him there. So what you're saying is, as an adult, you attended parties with underage kids. There was drinking and raping, and you saw Kavanaugh who was there, who was also underage, and you did nothing to help any of these kids. That's what you're saying. I don't think victim is the right word for you, or brave, or trustworthy. The Democrats are asked by the media, would you say if Judge Kavanaugh denies these allegations, does that mean he's a liar? First of all, can I just point out, I hate when journalists say something that's clearly defaming somebody, but they do this little upswing in their voice, so it becomes a question. So if Judge Kavanaugh denies these allegations, does that mean he's a liar? But they say it this way instead. So if Judge Kavanaugh denies these allegations, does that mean he's a liar? So it's a question. The answer was, if Judge Kavanaugh does not admit to these things, I think we can take it that he's not trustworthy and is untruthful. So here's the options for judge. You're either a rapist or you're a rapist and a, and a liar. That's the options. There's only two options you have for you. Okay, so have Kavanaugh went through six background checks by the FBI and all six times they missed this gang raping party thing that he ran for years. So when Kavanaugh was investigating Bill Clinton for sex crimes, this woman who was a Democrat didn't think, hmm, maybe I should say something about those gang rape parties Kavanaugh was running. I'm actually going to be recording this late Wednesday afternoon. So possibly by the time you hear this, things will have changed again. So it's Thursday and today Kavanaugh will be testifying in the Senate about his high school sex life. This is craziness. So let's recap. The president is a white supremacist Hitler who black people loved until he ran for president and who is the most pro-Israel president in history. 
His supporters are all racist Nazis, even though he has almost 40% approval rate among the black population, which by the way, is the largest support a Republican has had in the black community in the last four decades. A judge who has a spotless record and is loved by everyone who knows him is actually a secret rapist because there's three women with stories with no proof. And there are other crazy things we've been outraged about. Borders. We're outraged that borders are a thing because people should just be allowed to walk into whatever country they want freely. When did borders become something we all decided we didn't want? Wait, wait, you're probably thinking, well, it's not borders. It was the parents being separated from their children. Like that cute little girl on the Time magazine that was never separated from her mother and they had to Photoshop her mom out of the picture. Then there was hundreds of sex trafficking cases that have been stopped because the adults and the children have been separated at the border. That's not actually a port of entry. But no one talks about that. Why? Because if you knew that, you might not be outraged. And they need you to be outraged. But, but, but children, children were locked in cages like dogs. Yes, when Obama was president. Reporters took those pictures and tried to get the word out. But the media wouldn't cover it. But now we're outraged because now there's a trusted source that's outraged. Trump is putting these children up in these beautiful facilities with sand volleyball courts, TVs in every bedroom, basketball courts, and school classrooms. But, but, but I heard a child crying. I heard the audio of it. Yeah, go into any house where a child is present, wait more than 10 minutes, and you're going to hear a child crying. It isn't hard to record the sound of a child crying because it's basically what they do. To show you how the outrage machine works, let's look at some things we're not outraged about. Tim McLean was stabbed, beheaded, and then cannibalized while he was riding a Greyhound bus on March 5, 2009. His killer was a 40-year-old Chinese Canadian named Vincent Lee. Vincent Lee spent five years in a secured facility for this horrible crime, and then he was released. That's right, May 8th, 2015, he was free. Then he was given the right to change his name. He now goes by Will Baker. This should have us outraged, but we're not outraged. Why? Why are we fine with this guy who stabbed a man, cut off his head, and then tried to eat him on a bus ride? That guy's only getting five years in prison and he's allowed to change his name? Why are we cool with that? We're fine with it because it was either not reported or it was reported in a calm, non-outrageous way. What about abortion? Why are we not outraged by abortion? At the very least, why are we not outraged by abortion after 20 weeks when we know the baby feels what is happening to them? We've seen babies born at 20 weeks and we see them flinch with the slightest little prick or probe. We know they feel it, yet abortions are done at this stage. We know they're done at this stage because most babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are killed after this stage. We know because sex-selective abortions are done after this stage. This is what an abortion in the second trimester looks like. Their tiny little legs are ripped off their bodies one at a time. Then their arms are ripped off. Then their head is crushed. And that is when they actually die. We wouldn't want to kill anyone that way. But a little tiny baby we kill that way? or in the third trimester, when a needle full of poison is inserted into their brain through their eye, or into their heart, or into their umbilical cord. This poison takes up to 24 hours to kill them. 
There's a story that came out this week of a baby who survived this poison and was born alive and crying. He was then held by his mother until he died. The doctors and the parents were horrified. Not that the child died, but that he didn't die earlier, and the mother was forced to actually watch him die. This little baby was killed because he had a disability. We should be horrified. We should be outraged, but we're not. Here's another one. It's only been one month since Faisal Hussein walked down Danforth Avenue shooting. We were told he shot everyone he met. That's not true. He ran into a man named Jaspel Sink and said, don't worry, I'm not going to shoot you. Why? Because that man looked Muslim. He also didn't just walk and shoot like we were told. He actually stood over a woman looking down at her and shot her four times. How do I know that? Well, this week, the report that the police sent to the court in order to get a warrant was released. This was the report the police sent to the court the night of the shooting. The police report also says that the police dog found two AK-47 magazines fully loaded with ammunition and two 9mm handgun magazines fully loaded with ammunition and a whole bunch of handguns and a shotgun ammunition under his bed. They found all that stuff under his bed. They also found this white powdery substance and an Islamic headdress. The powder substance ends up being a drug that's a hundred times more powerful than fentanyl and a drug that terrorists have threatened to use as chemical warfare. That all happened a month ago. Shouldn't we still be outraged about this? How come our outrage only lasted like a day? What about the whole story about Hussein just being a man who struggled with mental illness? That clearly doesn't add up, but it's still the story that we have. Here's another story. July of 2017, a 13-year-old girl went for a walk to the park and never came home. She was raped and murdered, and her body was just tossed away like garbage. In September of that year, a man was arrested. The media said it was a Canadian man with no criminal history. A Canadian man was just an outright lie, and the no criminal history was a stretch. So the murderer was Ibrahim Ali. He was a Syrian, and he was part of the group that came just four months earlier into Canada as a refugee. So he was not a Canadian. He was trying to become one. And in the four months he'd been in Canada, okay, for those four months he didn't have a criminal record. The Chinese community is actually outraged. They're made up of both immigrants and children of immigrants, and they know the process of coming to Canada. At least they know what it's supposed to be. They know it's impossible for that process to be done correctly in the short time our government had to bring these tens of thousands of people into Canada. The community in both BC and Toronto is angry because they have family trying to come to Canada and it takes years to vet them. And yet Muslim immigrants seem to come with little or no vetting. The media is covering the protest of this Chinese community as white supremacist protests. Even saying it in a headline, one of the headlines said, how the Chinese community is embracing white supremacy. How are we not at least as outraged at the rape and murder of a 13 year old girl by a 27 year old man as we are outraged by the maybe possibly attempt rape of a 15 year old girl by a 17 year old boy 35 years ago? Shouldn't our outrage be at least similar? But instead the outrage seems to be directed at the Chinese community for demanding answers, not at the man who raped and murdered the little girl. 
How about families in Nigeria who are being burned alive because they're Christians? Or the families in South Africa who are tortured and killed because they're white farmers? There's multiple stories of men being forced to watch their wives and children raped and murdered, and then their eyes are plucked out. So the last thing the men see was the rape and murder of their family. Why are we not outraged about this? Because we're too busy being outraged because Trump said a thing. Think about this. Think about why we are outraged and how we are being told what to be outraged about. During the time of the Salem witch trials, there was only two voices that spoke out, the pastor and his son. These were the only voices telling people to stop and think rationally. They were ignored at first, but then people began to listen. And then they saw that what they were doing was wrong. I know there are people who want me to shut up and just let them hate Trump because, you know, they enjoy their outrage. But there's a reason I won't stop. Because we need to have voices that say, come on, think rationally. Stop for a second and just ask yourself why you're outraged. Here's what to ask yourself. What outrages me and what doesn't outrage me? And where exactly does my outrage come from? All right, I'm going to end with talking about something that outrages me. One more thing I haven't talked about. I'm outraged when preachers stand in public and preach heresy. I've been following the story of two Twitter arguments this week. One is Jen Hatmaker. Here's what she said. As a leader and author, pastor and teacher, let me just be positively clear on where I stand on a few things. In the most outrageous twilight zone ever, these issues have now become partisan, but to me, these are purely a matter of my faith, which compels me. I will always champion a working faith ethic that one, believes women. All right, pause here. Believes women? So no matter what women say, we just believe her? That's Christianity? What verse in the Bible says, always believe women? Women never lie. I missed that part of the Bible. In fact, I'm pretty sure it says in the Bible that if you bring a charge against somebody, you need to have a witness. All right, let's get back to what she says. I condemn the persuasive patriarchal power structures that keep women silenced, underpaid, underrepresented, exploited, denigrated, shamed, and abused. Okay, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's why countries that are primarily Christian don't have that problem. That's more common in, I don't know, Muslim countries. All right, back to what she said. Names represents from, resists, and actively fights white supremacy in all forms, structures, system, languages, and evil practices. All right, good, you're against racism. That's just like 99.9% .9 of the population. What's your point? All right, back to what she's saying. Actively resists children being held in detainment apart from their parents at the border as a wicked, punitive, unconscionable political strategy. All right, so how do you feel about child sex trafficking? Are you against that? Because that's why the adults and the children who are crossing the border illegally are separated. How about child rape? Are you against that? Because pretty much every girl traveling across the border is raped by Mexican gangs. That's why the children are put on birth control pills if they're old enough to have their periods. If they're traveling with their parents, their parents are the ones putting them in that situation. Refuses to accept the dehumanization of immigrants, refugees, Muslims, Mexicans, and brown and black bodies everywhere. Yeah, okay. Everyone agrees with that. 
affirms the LGBTQ community, defends their rights, and cherishes their humanity. All right, what exactly do you mean by affirm? I mean, I agree, as does everyone I know, that you should defend the rights of every person and, of course, cherish their humanity. But how does a pastor affirm something God calls a sin? All right, here she continues. Believes we have a better story to write together than the divided, fear-based example we see in the culture right now. We can do better. We are better than this. Uh, It kind of sounds to me like you're part of the outrage machine, Jen. She continues on. The thing is, this is the only way I understand the gospel. It cannot come to any other conclusion than this path laid out to us by Jesus. Anything other than a radically inclusive faith that honors the dignity of every person makes no sense to me. I can't find any other road through my faith than one that condemns patriarchy, misogyny, sexism, racism, homophobia, ableism, abuse, and white supremacy. Nothing else makes sense. This is who Jesus is and what he came to do. I can't say it any plainer. He came to loose the chains of injustice and set the captives free. Full stop. All right, so here's the problem. Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow is the road. Few will find it. Yes, Jesus died for all people. Everyone. He died and he rose again for all people. But that doesn't mean that all people will go to heaven. Jesus didn't come to loose the chains of injustice and set captives free. There is no full stop there. The chains of injustice and captives are set free when people live their lives controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and helps us once we become Christians. And that is why Jesus came to earth. He came to rescue us from our sin, full stop. That's why he came. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Not injustice done to us. Not that we are being held captive. No, our sin. Jesus didn't die because we are victims. Jesus died because we are sinners. This leads to the second online argument I saw this week. Did Jesus take the punishment for sins on the cross? Bruxy Cavey is a popular Canadian preacher, and he's been preaching that Jesus did not take our punishment on the cross. Bruxy says God did not take, Bruxy says God did not place his wrath on Jesus on the cross. But here's what the Bible says. In Isaiah, we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later in Isaiah, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In Matthew, we hear, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Galatians, we read, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. I'm going to post a link in the description um, of a blog that does a good job of showing all the problems with Bruxy Cavey, and I would highly recommend reading that. One of the reasons we're so easily manipulated by these false teachings is that we don't have true teachings. Our kids' ministry is a lot of crafts and games with a few Bible stories. Our youth groups are games, free time, and these short TED Talks with Bible verses added in. 
and our adults know now don't have a deep understanding of theology and they have no appetite for theology. So now our adult services have to be kept light and entertaining. This is unfortunately most churches across Canada. I talk to people all across Canada on a regular basis. And this is what I hear from the older generation, pretty much across the board. The older generation that grew up in a different kind of church setting, back in the day when we had Sunday school and kids memorized the Bible, when we used theological words and taught theology, when we had altar calls at the end of church and asked people to make commitments, but that's all gone for the most part in Canada. There are still a few churches like that, but they're scarce. And this has left people open to accepting false teachings because they don't know the foundational principles of our faith. I have a series on my website that I add to each week called Kidsmen. I've been posting videos about how to teach theology to kids because that is how we're going to solve this problem. We're going to need to actually teach theology. So here it is in a nutshell. God is our creator. God is love. He's also just and he's holy. He cannot be in a relationship with sin. And the problem is we are sinners. We're born wanting to do things our way instead of God's way. We've all turned away from God. Sin cannot be in God's presence because he is holy. And sin must be punished because he is just. But God is also love. So God himself came to earth. Jesus is God. He came and took the punishment for our sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So Jesus shed his blood. He died, but he came back to life three days later. And now when we confess our sins and when we turn from our sins and we call out to him in repentance and ask for forgiveness, he will. He will save us. That is the gospel. End stop. I'm Lurley Siemens. See you next week.